All right. Well, thank you all for being here with us. <coughs> this will be the last week we're in this place for a while. <laughs> I wish, uh, wish the rest of our folks would be here. We do look forward to the day that we'll all be able to gather together again. I know I look forward to that. Grateful that we can use Facebook Live that we're using right now um, to gather right now. And so for those of, of you who are uh, at your homes, welcome uh, to our worship gathering as well. Happy to have you here. Um, hoping I, whenever I set this up, I never really know if you can hear me. And it's always worked out, so I'm assuming it's working out right now. Um, so I hope you can hear me. Um, but it's good. It's good to be here. I'm glad to be able to to be here and work through the Bible with you all. So um, let me just move my stuff up right here. So last week we discussed the need of a new normal, and that's sort of a phrase that has been floating around, especially with all the coronavirus stuff. Right, trying to get back to a new normal. We need to flatten the curve, and uh, seems that we've done that pretty well um but we always get new new stories every single day and so you know what does it look like the new normal for our seniors graduating these past week my uh, stepson abram graduated from the elementary school um he was fifth grade going to sixth grade going to the middle school next year our new normal was instead of a an actual graduation gathering service was to have a graduation parade and so all of the kids came through in their cars, and we had a little uh, we had a little um, balloon there for him. Um, he actually got a balloon that Ellie knocked out of his hands, and he lost it. So we had to <laughs> we bought a new one, a new balloon for him. Um, but that was it. That's what we had to do, right? To to have some semblance of normalcy, but it was definitely new. Um, so so that's that's just our reality right now, but. Let's take that phrase and think about that phrase biblically. God wants a new normal for us, right? We have our regular normal, our now normal, but God wants a new normal. Because the truth is, none of us are the way that we should be, right? None of us have arrived to where we know we ought to be. Looking to Scripture, we see God's calling on us to live different lives than the ones that we are currently living right now. But how? How do we get there, right? We, we know we're not, we've got a now normal, we know there's a new normal, we know things are not how, and we're not how we want to be, but how do we get from there to here? How do we change? It's a great question. Uh, many books have been written on this topic of change. Some people tell you to set goals. Some people tell you to affirm yourself, to speak I am statements about yourself, that I am successful, and, and I'll be victorious, and I am this, and I am that. Other people tell you to visualize your ideal self. I went online and typed in that in the search bar, how do I change? There's an entire sort of Wikipedia page de- devoted to how you can change with all the steps. Just follow these steps, and you'll change. As we discussed last week, God has an activity for change in your life, and that activity for change is known as the process of sanctification. We often look for the process of change throughout what the world can give us. Oftentimes we don't actually go to the Bible to see what God has told us change actually looks 
like. Today, we're going to go to the Bible and we're going to actually look at what Scripture talks about this change, this word sanctification, which means to be set apart, to be set apart for God and to be set apart from sin. That is what the word sanctification means, to be set apart for holiness. Today, in particular, we're going to focus on that second one, to be set apart from sin, to be set apart from sin. And so we're actually going to be all over the Bible today. We're not, we don't have one specific verse that we're going to be in, um, but I will have the, um, the text up for us here. But we're going to start with that one. Sanctification means being set apart from sin. Now, sin, the discussion of sin, is one that a lot of pastors and people in general are reticent to do. It's not something we really want to press in on a lot because it's not a fun thing to think about sin, okay? I just want to tell you that of all the doctrines in the Bible, of all the things that God teaches, one of my favorite things that the Bible teaches is the doctrine of sin. And I know that that's kind of strange. But I love this doctrine of sin and the doctrine of of wrath, of God's wrath towards sin, the, the doctrine of God's judgment towards sin. And I, I love that, and I and I take so many so much pain to to make that explicit to people, because the shallower our understanding of sin, the the smaller we treat sin as far as its its significance, the less we are going to appreciate and love Jesus, and the cheaper the gospel and the cheaper grace will be, if you have a low view of sin or an incidental view of sin, or you view sin as just a bad habit, then you are not going to have a big view of God. It's impossible. And you're not going to have a big view of Jesus. But the greater your view of sin, the greater the grace of God. The greater your view of sin, the greater the love of God. The more you understand just how heinous and terrible and awful sin is, and that sin in you, and extension that where you're at as a sin in relationship to God, the more blown away you'll be by God's grace. That in spite of that, even while we were still sinners, it says in Romans 5, God died for us. That makes God a big God, right? That makes God a big God. That someone would scarcely die for a righteous person, but an unholy person? A sinner? No one's going to die for a sinner. But God did. What does that mean about his love? So we're going to look at this doctrine of sin because it is the core to understanding all of the Bible. It's key to understanding why Jesus came. And you can't understand the gospel without understanding sin. And so Romans 3.23, this is the go-to text as we're talking about this doctrine of sin. And what it says is it implicates all of us. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a lot of issues in this world today, right? Race issues, <clears throat> political issues, all sorts of stuff going on today. The Bible says our greatest issue is a sin issue, okay? A sin issue. And, and that certainly expresses itself in the things we're seeing today. But it's more 
than just black and white, young and old, rich and poor. It's a condition of humanity. It says, for all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everyone's implicated in sin, all have sinned. And an extension of that, connected to that, to understand what that word sin even means, it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means is this. God has a standard of right and wrong. God has a standard of his glory, right? And to attain to that standard, to live to that standard, is to glorify God. But we've fallen short of that. We've fallen short of the standard that God has given us. And whenever we fall short of his standard, that's called sin. No one can get it, right? It's, it's unattainable, except for Christ. And so if we look at God's standard of right and wrong, we realize that we're probably not as good of, as people as we think we are. I think most people obviously think would say, I'm a good person. And whenever we say that, we typically compare ourselves to Hitler, right? Or, or Jeffrey Dahmer, or think of the worst person you can think of, right? And so if you have, like, something that's, that's you know, black, and I'm, like, gray, right? Jeffrey Dahmer, Hitler, black, and I'm gray. It's like, well, I'm a lot better than that guy. If Jeffrey Dahmer is the standard of goodness, then the world's going to blow up, okay? The world's go- and the world's already blowing up, right? So that's not the standard. The standard is God's perfect Righteousness, And if we compare ourselves to God's perfect righteousness, we realize we're not good people. Even the best of us. Even Chris. Even, even Ed. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Chris, Chris and Ed both now. I'm picking on the guys. Anyways. Romans 1.21 shows us. It says, For although they knew God, although we understand that there is a God, Right? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is how we've fallen short. It's not merely that we don't follow what God has told us to follow or live the way God has told us to live or fallen short of that standard. It's that we have ceased to value God as the most valuable thing in our lives. Let me think about it that way. It changes things. It's not like God's just like, okay, go to, make sure you go to church, make sure you read your Bible, make sure you do this and that and the other. It's not just that. It's that you value that as more valuable than the rest of the things in your life because you can actually do those things and still not love God in the process of doing those things. It says our hearts were darkened, became futile in our thinking, we became foolish, and we begin to value and love things in the world that are not truly valuable or lovely compared to God. Our minds have been misled. We have fallen in our sin. We do not value God as, as much as he truly is. And so this is true of all of us. This is the default of man. And the big question, sort of the question that really gets down to brass tacks, is a question, is man basically good or is man basically bad? If you ask that question, most people will say, man, I believe man is basically good. That's our natural inclination. And look, I'm not, there are people that are great folks, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. The people that, that do good things out there that don't believe in God, okay? That, that's true. But at, at the heart of it, at the heart of it, we are basically bad. 
because we do not honor and love God as highest above all. That's not how we operate. That is not our, our sort of natural inclination. By God's standard of good and badness, we are bad. Uh, there's a theologian, G.K. Chesterton, that said that this, this doctrine of, of sin was the only part of Christian theology that could really be proved. If you watch the news, I mean, come on, right? I, I believe it's three to one, bad news versus good news, if you watch a, a regular sort of programming. Three to one. Now? I mean, no, not at all. So, so, so whenever we get that, we're basically bad, there's a natural objections that come. We say, this isn't me, I'm not a bad person. I've never stolen anything, I've never done anything too, too terrible before. But the truth is, under the right circumstances, we are liable to do things we would never think of doing otherwise. Maybe you're good only because you're deterred from bad. Maybe you're good not for the sake of goodness, just for the sake of, of what would happen if you do did a bad thing. Okay? Let me tell you a story. So we've all been to the bank, dropping off a, a deposit a check or, or whatever, and we've seen those giant money trucks, those giant armored money trucks, and those guys, like jack guys with the you know, vests and all that with the money and, and uh, you know, uh, switching money. I'm not really sure what they're doing, to be honest. But, so, you know, they got these massive guns. And uh, there was a, a story a couple of years ago. One of these trucks was going down the road, and they left a door open or something, and money was flying out of this thing on the side, it was on the side of the road, piles and piles of money, like actual money, not, not Monopoly money. And people were pulling off on the side of the road and throwing t- piles of cash in their car, right? And in an instant, perfectly fine, law-abiding citizens, when the opportunity presented itself with little to no retribution of punishment, committed this illegal and offending act. They became thieves. It's not their money. It's the bank's money, or it's, it's your money or my money in the bank that we put in there, right? It's not their money. And yet, when the opportunity presented itself, they took the money, right? Because they probably weren't going to get in trouble. Some money on the side of the road, okay? We could do the same thing with the looting and rioting that we see. Perfectly fine, law-abiding citizens that presented the opportunity might just go into this target and might just take something because it wouldn't. I won't get in trouble anyways. I'm a good person, but whenever the opportunity presents itself, why were you good? Because you didn't want to get in trouble or because you truly wanted to follow the righteous standard of God. As sinners, we have lost the fear of God before our eyes. We've lost the love of God in our hearts and are liable to commit and pursue any number of wrong, sinful actions depending on the situation that we are put in. I think anyone, if, we're, if that's how we're viewing it, if we're being real with ourselves, I would never do that, but what if the scenario changes, the situation changes? Maybe you would. So this is sin in our hearts. It's not that we are kept from doing these things because we love God. Oftentimes we're kept from doing these things because we don't want to get in trouble. That's two separate things. I want what I want, and if I can get it, I'm going to get it. And what we see in those who commit these, you know, these acts of crime is that they have less fear of the retribution. Maybe push that way because they don't have anything, but they're willing to rob a bank in, the, in broad daylight because there's less fear there 
or they're pushed to it in ways that we wouldn't. But the situation changes. We might do the same thing. We might pull over on the side of the road. I mean, think about it. If if you can, they got money from the bank, right? <laughs> they got in the end. If someone robs a bank, you get money from the bank. Or this guy that pulled over got money from the bank. Into the same way, two different situations. Jesus says in Mark seven, verses twenty to twenty-three. So this is what he says. He says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. So am I a sinner because of what's outside of me, because I was pushed to, to do that, to do these terrible things? Was I influenced to do those things because of my, my, uh, my surrounding, my environment? That's what Jesus says. What comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, okay, from inside, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So if you were to ask Jesus, is man basically good or basically bad? What would Jesus say? Right? What do you think he would say? Well, he just, he just went off on us. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. For Jesus, there is no such thing as the devil made me do it. Consider Eve. The devil was literally there, right? And literally coaxed her into eating the fruit. And yet she was the one who was cast out of Eden. She was cursed along with Adam and the serpent. Can you imagine this view of humanity that Jesus says being discussed by our politicians today? Can you imagine... Crafting sort of public policy based on these words. Can you imagine our news anchors? Can you imagine our celebrities speaking things like this? It would be terrible, right? Shunned, canceled, right? That, that type of thing. And yet this is what the Bible teaches. This is sort of the bedrock of Scripture. The bedrock of the Gospel to understand our situation. We have a lot of issues today. But the truth is, if we want to get from our now normal to our new normal, we need to be sanctified. And if we're going to be sanctified, we need to figure out what our issue is. We need to figure out what needs to be changed. If we're going to fix our problems, we need the right diagnosis. So if, if, if I have cancer, and you tell me it's the common cold, that does not help me. Any doctor that gives that diagnosis is not helping you out. In fact, it's a death sentence. Because you're not going to attack it the way that you need to attack it. So whenever we talk about sanctification, being set apart to a new normal, we have to talk about sin. Because that's what we're being set apart from. That's our entire issue, the sins of the heart, the sexual morality, the theft, the murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, all these things that are on the inside of us, not the outside, the inside of us that lead us away from God. That's what we're being sanctified from. We've got to get that. We've got to get that one right. If we don't get that one right, then it's just a bunch of self-help. It's just a bunch of sort of worldly motifs and worldly ideas that might bring temporary solutions, but not lasting change. Our God is not a temporary God. He's a forever God. He's an eternal God, and His work on you is forever and eternal. So the question is how? 
How do we get from this now normal to this new normal? If you remember, Romans 8, uh, 29, that we looked at last week, showed us what the goal of sanctification is. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's the goal. Conformity to Jesus. Being made into the image of Jesus. That's the new normal God wants. The question is, how do we get there? If what Jesus has, has said in Mark 7 about all these things coming from within... That's where they start, these terrible things. How do we get from Mark 7 to Romans 8? How do we get from what Jesus said about us on the inside to the image of Jesus from our lives? That's what we're going to discuss today. That's what we're going to work at and look at today. How God sets us apart from these things. The first thing that we see, how God does this, is he does it internally internal sanctification. God changes us and separates us from our sin through the influence of the Holy Spirit. Through the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what it says, John 16, 7 to 8. It says, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's about to be um, crucified and he's going to be gone soon. He's on the cusp of, of all of that. And he's preparing them for life without him, essentially. This is what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, it is better for me not be around, which is crazy to think about, because whenever I'm not around, I'll be with you through my spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's better to have him because if I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will convict you. He'll convict the whole world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The first step in how God changes us is through the influence of the Holy Spirit, the internal working of the Holy Spirit. We discussed last week the good news for all of us, God's plan again, is that we are definitively sanctified. If you think about sanctification, you can view it from two lenses. Definitive sanctification is that whenever we have believed in Jesus... We've been set apart for all eternity. I am not, my identity is not a sinner. My identity is a righteous child of God. I'm not guilty of any sin. If you believe in Jesus, you're not guilty of any sin. From an eternal perspective, whenever God looks at you, he sees pure righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Okay, That's, You are definitively sanctified once for all, from, from death to life, darkness to light. But then, the other side of it is, we're progressively sanctified. While that is true, while you are justified before the Lord, we are still sinners today, right now. God is making us into what he's already declared us to be. That is progressive sanctification. God looks at us and sees Christ, and yet every single day, God is making us into that image of Jesus that we already are. It's kind of interesting to think about. So we are in this world being progressively sanctified. And here we see how God is going to do that. He's going to do that through us, through the Holy Spirit. And specifically, the role of the Holy Spirit in this instance is to convict the world for sin. It says when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what is conviction of the Holy Spirit? 
What does that mean, conviction of the Holy Spirit? Well, we know what the word conviction means. A couple of understandings. If you're convicted of a crime, you're guilty of a crime. But if you also have convictions, you have deeply held, strongly held beliefs. Well, from the crime aspect, if you're convicted of the crime, but if it's a Holy Spirit conviction, then it is God revealing our sins to us. If we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, we are seeing things that are wrong in our lives that we didn't see before, that we never understood before. And what Jesus is saying is, you're not going to see these things apart from God showing you these things. This is the divine act. I once was blind to who I was, right? But now I see. That's internal working of God. That's not you just wised up. No, it's God showing you those things. And that is a sanctifying act of God to convict you of your sin. Let me give you an example. Whenever I was little, we had um, we had four, you know, four kids in the family, so six of us total. And we had one of those big vans, like um, kind of a land yacht kind of thing that if the wind blew too hard, it topped the whole thing over, right? Just huge van. And it had a TV in there, not a flat screen. This is like a box TV. This was 90, well, anyway, Windows 95, so this was probably 98. Or I was probably Abram's age, about eight years old. Anyways, we were in there. Um, we were on a family trip going to, like, Mobile, Alabama. And um, we were watching a, a TV show, a movie, and one of the lines in the movie, a guy used a, a cuss word, a curse word. And I just repeated the line. I didn't know it was a curse word. I just repeated a line in the way the guy said it. My mom turned around, and she's like, don't you ever say that word. That's a bad word. Don't ever say that. I didn't know, right? I had no idea it was a bad word. It was a bad word. Yeah, it was on TV. It's, it's, everything's fine on TV, right? In that moment, my mom revealed to me that what I did was wrong. I was convicted of that. I, I was ignorant of what I said was wrong. My mom showed me. Had she not shown me, I probably should have, probably should have been watching anyways. That's probably on her, right? But had she not shown me, I wouldn't have known, right? It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. He convicts us. Jesus sends into us, eternally sanctifying us upon belief in Christ. And we begin seeing these issues that we hadn't seen before. So that's the first thing. We see it. We're blind, but now we see. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just reveal these things to us and just leave us out in the cold and say, good luck. But he also works in us. This conviction should lead us someplace. This conviction should lead us someplace. This is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 said. It says, And we all, with unveiled faces, before we had veiled faces, we couldn't see. Now the, the veil is it's taken away. Now we can see the glory of God. We hadn't seen the glory of God before Christ. Now we see the glory of God are being transformed into the same image of the glory that we see. Again, remember Romans 8. Conformed to the image of Jesus. This says that we are transformed into the image, the glory of God, from one degree of glory to another, bit by bit by bit, being transformed. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us, shows us, and the Holy Spirit changes us after we see God made into His image. Scripture goes on to describe the results of this transformative process. It's described as fruit. Galatians 5, 19 to 24, 
shows us the dichotomy here. What we were once, the now normal, what God wants us to be, the new normal. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. This is us before that definite sanctification. Some things we can still struggle with. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The whole gamut of stuff. This is what comes out of us, right, that Jesus was talking about. This is the sin inside of us, the works of the flesh. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I just want to dwell on that. There is an eternal destiny tied to present realities. How you live your life now points to where you're going, okay? People who do the works of the flesh, who just go at it here. It says, I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're an adulterer, if you're divisive, if you're drunk, dissensions, divisions. Now, hear me out. That doesn't mean you're perfect, right? It doesn't mean you won't struggle, right? But someone who pursues and lives this lifestyle with no regard for anything, with no conviction of the Holy Spirit, blind to what this is producing in them, it says that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're living your life this way, Paul can confidently say that he knows where you're going to whenever you die. I said, well, that's judgmental. That's judgmental. How, how does Paul know my heart? Right? That, that's what we would probably say or think. How does Paul know my heart? But the Bible says a tree is known by its fruit. What produces out of you shows you the condition of your heart. And if you truly know Jesus, you get a new heart because you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Internal sanctification. You're changed. It's different. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you struggle, but it means you actually do struggle. I think that's a huge different, different, differentation there. It means you struggle with these things. Some people say they struggle. They don't. They just, just go for it, right? They just do it. They, there's no struggle. There's no conviction. But for those who have the Holy Spirit, there's a difference. For the Spirit is love. For the Spirit is joy. These people... They have peace. These people are patient. They're kind. They're good, faithful, gentle. They have self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh. All of those things list in the first part. Those who have Jesus, that has been crucified. They've died to those things with its passions and its desires. You can't fake the Holy Spirit. A tree is known by its fruit. So the Spirit's job in you is to reveal what's going on in your life and then to transform you into these types of things. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, love, uh, self-control, all of that stuff. That's the Spirit's job, to produce out of you fruit that is contrary to what you were before. How do you make an unloving man loving? How do you make an unkind woman kind? 
How does someone with no self-control bring himself under control? Jesus said it's by the Holy Spirit. Through the internal conviction and working of the Holy Spirit on someone who has come to love Jesus more than themselves. It's an amazing promise. You can't go to the store and buy this. And yet it's absolutely free. I remember a guy in our church, he, um, him and his girlfriend uh, were going to the church, and they had all sorts of struggles in their life. And we were you know, ministering to them, and, and they were living together. And, and I, you know, whenever you folks come to the church and, and you're you know, ministering to them and all that, um, sometimes it, the, the, you know, the work on the couple isn't um, even. So this guy, I think, was really getting it more than the girl was. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think he was more convicted by it. I think, I think he was starting to click a little bit more than for the girl. And um, and I remember he told me, you know, because they, they were living together and, and they, you know, were acting like they were married, you know, sleeping together and all that good good stuff. And so I remember he told me that as we were chatting and, and working together, he w- began to be convicted about that intimacy that they had. And he said that he was fighting that temptation and he just got out of the house and went outside to do some chores so he wouldn't fall into, tem- into temptation. And the, what, what I'm, as I'm looking at that, it's like, well, why would this guy ever do that in himself? His whole life, before coming to, the ch- to church and, and you know, learning about to the Bible and, and the Word, he would have never been convicted about that. He was never convicted about it before. But now he's trying to exercise, exercise some amount of self-control to not fall into sin. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? I wasn't there. He didn't do it because he's like, oh, well, Pastor Aaron's seeing, I better be on my best behavior. No, it was just he was just in his regular situation. Where did that conviction come from, and where did the fruit of self-control come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. It came from God. That's exactly where it came from. And that's how God works. You're not on your own here. And this is a great promise. This is a fountain of promise. That for every fleshly deed, there is a spiritual counterweight, a spiritual counterbalance to put those things away and to pursue these better things through the influence of the Holy Spirit. So we see this internal role that God himself is playing in our lives to sanctify us, to set us apart. But if we just look at it from this perspective, we might think that God's just going to take care of it, so I'll just kind of sit on my hands and wait for him to sanctify me, right? I'm just going to wait for God's, you know, heavenly golden rainbow clouds to just sort of sprinkle down sanctification and I'll be all set. It's not how it works. Because we also have a role to play in our sanctification. Okay? This is what it says in Mark 9, 43 and 48. What we're going to see here is not internal sanctification through the Holy Spirit, but external sanctification. Uh, a phrase from this Puritan pastor, John Owen, he's, he calls it mortification of sin. Putting sin to death. If you mortify something, you put it to death. So we have an active role to play in not doing the things that we know are wrong and actively fighting against them. So what Jesus says, to get the point across, using very graphic um, picture here. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I think it's, we like post, you know, on social media, you know, quotes from Jesus and all that, like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, you know. I've, I was thinking about just doing a week of things like this, right? This is also, because Jesus says a whole bunch of stuff that to, to, <laughs> to balance it out. So this is striking hyperbole. He's not telling you to cut your hand off or pluck your eyes out. If that's the case, we'd all be blind. We'd all be, we would, none of us have feet or, or hands, right? It's hyperbole. He's making a point. And the point is this. If there is sin in your life, if there's temptation to sin in your life, if there's a pathway to sin in your life, you must take drastic measures to cut these things out of your life, to cut them off, starve the thing, lest you prove yourself to be lost in unbelief and on the road to destruction. It is better to be lame, crippled, and half-blind in this world, which means it's better to deny yourself and go without and wage war on your sin than it is to have these things and wind up in hell. This church is called the mortification of sin, putting sin to death. And it really is that radical. Romans 8.13 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you don't chop the hand off that leads you to sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit, again, the Spirit, that's the theme, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus puts this concept of putting sin to death in such stark terms for a reason. And I think the reason is we don't realize just how dangerous sin is. Okay, We don't realize at the time, maybe we have these sins in our lives and we're thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little thing and it's just over here and, and I don't do it a lot. You know, to, to us, it's not a huge thing. Right? But at the heart of sin is a lie. One, that it's not that big of a deal. Two, it's a lie that says this thing that I want is better than God's alternative to me. At the heart of sin is a lie that says this is better than God. Whatever it is. Whatever the sin is. Because God has this fruit. The world has this fruit. Sin is saying this is better than this. But it is not true. And over time, what happens as you give in to the sin over and over and over again, this seemingly small sin gets hardened. This seemingly small little sin grows and grows and grows and sort of makes your heart numb. And now it's stony, solid, and hard. This is why the writer of Hebrews 3.13 says this, but exhort one another every day, as long as, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's the lie and the hardness. We're deceived by sin. We want it. We think that's better. So we go after it, not realizing time, time after time, we're hardened. Our hearts are hardened. Hearts are hardened. We don't want to cut it out. So my question to you is, what lies are you believing about God, what lies are you telling to yourself that this isn't that big of a deal or this is better than God? And then, what do you need to cut out of your life as you wage war on your sin? 
whenever I got around the end of college, um, then after college, I uh, got an Instagram account. A lot of us have Instagram accounts. And, uh, you know, just using it, taking pictures, um, you know, of my food or whatever, you know, that we do. And as I was using Instagram, I realized that pretty much half of Instagram are ladies and girls in suggestive and sensual positions, right? Showing off their bikinis, showing off all this stuff. And as a guy, as a guy, 20-year-old guy, 22-year-old guy, you're just asking for it. If 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 you have, you know, if you have an Instagram account and you understanding the gateway to all types of things that I know aren't good for me, I'm just asking for temptation. I mean, it's just the truth. Ask any guy what we struggle with is lust. That's it. And that can express itself in pornography. That can express itself in in more terrible things like sexual abuse and rape and all that type of stuff. Or it can manifest itself in just um, lewd and crude thoughts. So I realized I can't have an Instagram account. Not going to happen for me. Not going to happen. Because it's just going to lead me to sin. So what did I do? I don't have an Instagram account. Okay? Cut it out. I don't want that. Especially now that I have a wife. This is before I had a wife. Especially now that I have a wife. It's not helpful for me. I'm not going to go down that path. I'm not going to open myself up to that. I'm going to cut that out. Because that path leads to destruction. This is what it says in Proverbs verse five, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Son, this is the wise father speaking to the son. Son, keep your way far from her. This is the adulterous woman or sexual temptation. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door to her house. Is there anything wrong with a door? No, it's wood and metal. But we know what's behind the door. You might say, well, I was just strolling down the street and, and I just wound up here and now I'm in this situation. Oh, woe is me. Well, if you know the door of temptations there, don't go down the street. Don't even go to the street because you know where the street leads. That's what Jesus is saying. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut the thing out. It's better to be half blind than to let these deceitful sins harden your heart against God and you totally leave Him. A guy I was counseling, struggling with pornography, um, he typically act, 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 um, he got the pornography through his, his phone. And so his marriage was, very, was struggling. He was sort of uh, at a crisis point where he wasn't even really, didn't even know if he believed in Jesus anymore. And he, he was really struggling. And so the question is, how do we get rid of his sin? How do we get rid of his sin? Well, we get rid of it through the phone. Well, what are we going to do? Well, let's get rid of the phone, Right? Just don't have a smartphone anymore. Just throw, throw it away. Get a, get a flip phone. You don't need a smartphone. You can still talk and text. It's like, well, no, i got to work. i, I got to do email. i got to check this. i got to check that. Okay? Well, which is more important, your family, your faith, or your phone? Right? That's the deceitfulness of sin. That these things that we think we need that are actually destroying our lives are more important to us than the things that are threatened by it. The deceitfulness of sin. And so that's that was the goal. We gotta get rid of this guy's phone. We gotta get rid of the paths to sin. We get we gotta we gotta fight this. We gotta cut these things out. We gotta wage war on these things. And so 
the external working, that we got this internal conviction, but it doesn't really amount to real change until we apply it externally. We have to expose the sin and then cut the pathways of that sin out of our lives and not be foolish in the process, but be real. You aren't nearly as strong as you think you are. And you don't have to be. You don't have to be, because God can be strong for you. God can be strong for you, and he's shown you what to do by avoiding temptation. And whenever the temptation does come, enduring it. Cut the thing out of your life. If you remember the story of Joseph, he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. He ran away. He ran away. He got out of there. And so, as we think about these things, our now normal versus our new normal. God promises great things to us. You saw that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All of those things are ours in Jesus. He promises that to us through His Spirit. And He promises to help us. And He's shown us what we need to do to have that new normal versus our now normal. Once the sin is exposed and we are convicted of it, internal working, we need to cut it out of our lives, our pathways, our access to it, external working. And so this is how progressive sanctification works. 1 Corinthians 10.13 gives us this last and final promise. And this is really the bedrock of what um, progressive now sanctification looks like. This is what God says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So this is not new to God, what you're going through. God is faithful. It's not new to him. He's with you. He will not let you be tempted beyond your, your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God does not leave us alone. We just have to remind ourselves of the gospel. The fight against this is to love what God has offered to us, love God himself more than the things of this world, and to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us to fight against the sin and just be smart and practical and think, what is going to tempt me? How, what am I going to do to get rid of these things? God is sanctifying his church. God is sanctifying us. He's sanctifying you guys. He doesn't want you to be where you are. He wants you to be new, a new normal for you. So whatever your situation, whatever your sin, God is going to provide for you right now, And eternally, he has provided for us through his son. The ultimate escape from sin is the cross. And whenever we realize that, we will be armed to endure today. So I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you today that God is with you, no matter what. But where are you with God? God is with you, but where are you with him? Do you see your sin? Are you broken over your sin? And are you running after God in the fight against your sin? He has provided the way of escape for you. He's provided his son to save us, all of us, for the rest of time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for um, this promise of sanctification, God. Um, just an, an amazing promise. I mean, we got, we got people throughout this world just at the end of their, their rope, Lord, the end of the street, dead end, saying, how, 
how can I change? How can I change? And you have, you have given your son to, to take away the, the guilt and the judgment of sin. It's gone. Righteous, not guilty before you through him, through repentance and faith. And you have given your spirit to us right now, every day, to fight against that lingering temptation and sin. We can change. We can go from a now normal to a new normal. And so I, I just pray as we press into your word and look at these hard things and not shy away from them and talk about sin and, and all these terrible things and these truths, Lord, that, that we would, instead of being moved to despair, we would move, be moved to hope because we know that you have taken care of these things on the cross. And so I, I just want to pray for everyone here and pray for our church joining us on Facebook Live, Lord, that you would sanctify us from our sin for your glory. Help us, Lord, at every moment, every day. You are with us always. Lord, we love you and we thank you for that. It's on the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.